Assalamualaikum and welcome to another episode of the Dr. Will Show, where I interview educators and entrepreneurs on leveling up. Each episode, I zoom in someone who's dope, and we just sit back and have a conversation of what it means to live your best life. Now, if this is your first time checking out the podcast, this is the Mobile University of Entrepreneurs, and I'm your host, Dr. Will. Today's guest is Dr. Markenia Williams. I don't know why I kind of had a little brain shock right there. Uh, and we're going to be talking about uh, her experiences as an educator, her pivot into educational uh, consulting and the work that she is doing. So for those who'll be listening on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Simplecast, Stitcher, and Spotify, will you please introduce yourself, Dr. Markenia? Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Dr. Will. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Uh, I'm a Chicagoan. Uh, lived in uh, Illinois all of my life. And so um, I grew up in the inner city of Chicago, um, was raised by uh, a single parent most of my uh, life. My father passed unexpectedly when I was seven. So that shifted uh, some things within our household. But nonetheless, uh, was raised by a great mom, a village. And, and in fact, um, that really helped me get to the point that I am uh, here today. So I'm excited to be here. And I, I hope that uh, I learned something from you and you all learned something from me. All right, Chicago. I have been. Okay. Uh, not because, you know, it seems like half of Mississippi got family in Chicago, uh, <laughs> but because my wife is from Cicero. Nice. And so I've been to Chicago and it's interesting. Like when if I'm sort of flying in or driving through, Mm-hmm. I see the buildings and the people. I get excited. But once I'm in the city, it's kind of like, <sighs> it doesn't, yeah. it, it doesn't, it hadn't spoken to me yet. Nola speaks to me. <laughs> I, I, I love Nola. Uh, yeah. I like Boston too. But the the uh, Chicago just hasn't quite. Grew on you yet. It hadn't done it yet. You know, it, going the, 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 Ooh, magnificent mile like all the buildings and all the the scenery it's it's beautiful you know my wife last yes. time we were there i don't know where we were uh of course we did the bean uh mm-hmm. but we went to a nutella restaurant okay and i'm thinking it's a nutella restaurant what mm-hmm. we love nutella let's go but then you go in it's kind of like oh is that it i don't know i just <laughs> Yeah, I just raise expectations. But my wife, she, she, she loves it, and uh, and I'm like, well, I gotta go. Since the in laws are there, I gotta go to uh, mm-hmm. something. Got to grab me for me to fall in love with the city. I also don't like the cold. Yeah, it's brutal, brutal I'm, winters. Come from Mississippi, I'm like, I don't <laughs> even know how black folk is living <laughs> in weather that cold. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, that's a great sort of description of, of the city, the highs and lows. You know, I, uh, for years, I never really cared for going downtown because it is so busy and it is difficult driving. So if I was, go- you know, going that way, I would more than likely take public transportation or try to carpool because uh, parking is crazy. And, you know, the parking garages are extremely expensive. Um, and so I just sort of avoided, you know, downtown for, for a while, um, unless, you know, I really just needed to take care of some business down there. And so, you know, as I got older, you know, I started 
you know, saying, oh, there's a little bit more to do, but the suburban um, extensions of, of Chicago, essentially, they have a lot uh, of things to do also. And so a lot of business has sort of uh, been migrated to mm-hmm. the suburban uh, areas of, of Illinois, um, which I currently reside. I reside in Hoffman Estates now uh, for the last three years or so. Um, but I go to the city every weekend. I'm literally, after we get done with this show, packing up my nephew and we're going to the city. So every weekend I'm there because um, that's home. You know, everyone is there uh, in my family and I'm the only one sort of out here uh, in the boondocks, I'll call it. <laughs> so, so yeah, so yeah. That's all right. So I love it. I would mind where I would love to live. And this is crazy. Uh, I would love to live in Galesburg and work at Knox, which is where my wife went to undergrad. Uh, okay. When I got there, I was like, wow, this feels a little like Mississippi, kind of real chill mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. laid back. But I, I can't move if my money ain't right. Because. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, that matters. You know, money matters. We got all these hashtags with matters. Money matters. So sure. I, 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 I definitely can agree with that. <laughs> can do that. Can do that. So, yeah. uh, wow. So let me ask you this, because I'm always curious as to how people got to where they started. Um, mm-hmm. What did you think you'll be doing when you were growing up and how did you find yourself in education? Well, Dr. Will, I, uh, I was um, pursuing nursing. Uh, I had an aunt that was a nurse and I adored her. I love the flexibility that she had um, uh, with that career. Uh, she often was a contractual nurse. So she would you know, work in different states with different hospitals and she would tell me all about the money she was making. And so uh, that sort of lured me sort of down that track. Um, but then I met chemistry. And uh, that, sort of, that sort of changed, you know, the trajectory of my career aspirations. Um, and uh, I've always loved uh, young children. Uh, like I said, I lost my father at, at seven and I was a daddy's girl. And um, during those sort of formative years, you know, I, my mom didn't, you know, put me in counseling or therapy. We were a Christian home. So prayer was sort of the remedy for, for every solution, which, you know, I appreciate, you know, prayer, but um, I am now aware that there are um, uh, trained practitioners that can sort of help you get through rough pack, patches. And so I didn't necessarily have that uh, encounter uh, while dealing with grief as, as a young child. So I always was drawn to um, young children. I was always sort of like the mother and the group where we would play, you know, I have an older brother, but, you know, I was sort of more dominant uh, with my personality. And so I wanted to be a pediatric nurse. So my first job um, in high school, senior year of high school, I had an internship um, at a hospital here uh, in the city, and I was placed in a labor and delivery ward. And um, the hospital was in the Inglewood community. So uh, probably about 30 to 40 percent of the children that were born uh, were born, you know, sub- with substance abuse uh, concerns, and they were often being placed in DCFS or being, you know, adopted. Um, and so they would pretty much be there maybe three to four days, um, and they would have withdrawals and all that. So my job, honestly, was uh, I would be in the uh, delivery room, and then I would give them their first bath. And honestly, I would just hold them for about four hours, hold and feed them. And so I love that. Um, and like I said, I've always 
loved uh, like caring for children. Um, and so I wanted to be a pediatric nurse. And so when, you know, I encountered a setback with chemistry, um, the program that I was uh, attempting to get into, I needed to, to get a B in order to get enrolled uh, into the program. And that was my last class. And uh, my brother and I, we were actually both sort of trying to pursue nursing and we were in the class together and I got a C. And um, because I didn't fail or get a D or F, I couldn't necessarily retake that same course. So they put me in a higher chemistry and you know I, I needed to get a B out of that uh, course and that just didn't work out. And so after the second attempt, I said, let me see what other options can sort of fulfill that um, passion, that quest that I had for caring for young children. And so I uh, pursued early childhood education and uh, you know, uh, got certified as an early childhood educator. I was a primary teacher uh, when I taught, but I entered the profession as a teacher's assistant, a paraprofessional, and uh, matriculated, you know, through the system and uh, became certified uh, as an administrator, uh, obtained a master's in curriculum and instruction, um, and uh, as of recent this year, uh, completed my doctorate in educational leadership. Um, and so that's sort of how I kind of came into the profession. The profession found me. Um, and so here I am. I hate, I hate find me too. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> I didn't, I didn't start out uh, to do this. In fact, my undergraduate degree is in uh, radio, tele television and film with an interest in film production. Because uh, wow. I wanted okay. to, you know, make movies. Uh, so <laughs> it, it definitely was was anything that I was set out. I just had a greater mission on black liberation and, mm. and, and uh, impact of the lives of black people. That, that was sort of my greater mission, but for me to get where I am now and doing what I'm doing, what I'm doing now, that was definitely, mm. not, I could never foresee what I'm doing now. Mm. Uh, so you're an educator and you decided I want to become an educational consultant. Mm -hmm. uh, I know I, you know, gave you a list of questions, but I want to ask you this first. Mm -hmm. What was that conversation like when you first said you had that inkling of I want to do this. I want to create a side hustle. I want to monetize my, my talents because there's a lot of educators who to this day still sort of push back on the notion that we should be paid for mm -hmm. doing things like that. Mm -hmm. um, a, a turn of events uh, honestly happened. Um, I've always had sort of an entrepreneur uh, tick, if you will, uh, growing up in a single parent home uh, we, we had to hustle, you know, we had to hustle, you know, to get through. Um, I didn't attend K-12 uh, schooling as uh, within the public schools. Uh, my mom put my brother and I through private and parochial schools. And so my first encounter with the public schools was as a practitioner. And I remember uh, getting there and said, oh, wow, this is what my mom was trying to shield us from, essentially. Um, and so I just recalled experiences of you know, us having hard times, uh, my mom would, you know, we worked the paper route with my mom. She delivered, you know, uh, pieces, you know, at night. And um, we often had a lot of mobility. We lived with other people. Uh, we slept in our cars at times. We, uh, 
uh, just just didn't have uh, a, a stable environment up until I was around 12 when she was able to purchase uh, her first home. And um, when I got uh, into the public schools, I said, wow, you know, parents should not have to make those sacrifices uh, that my mom did financially, uh, even though we went without a lot, tuition was always paid. Uh, she was adamant about us being literate people. And so um, I became relentless with sort of having that same passion and drive as a teacher um, and as an administrator to ensure that kids in the average neighborhood school uh, were literate. And um, that was, you know, heavy, heavy work, you know, because everyone on the team didn't necessarily have that passion, that drive. But I just didn't believe that parents should have had, should have to make that same sacrifice that my mom did uh, in order to uh, ensure that their children were uh, thriving adults. Um, and so, um, like I said, I, I sort of matriculated uh, my way through in various roles uh, as a professional. And uh, this past school year, the 1920 school year, was probably my most, uh, one of my most challenging school years. Um, as I mentioned, I am in the suburbs now of Illinois, about 45 minutes or so from the city. And I ended up out here because of a, a job opportunity. Um, I was a primary teacher, like I stated. And so in CPS, they do not um, separate uh, elementary from middle school or primary. The whole spectrum of CPS is pre-K to eight. That is an elementary building. So I thought it was very unique when I saw the suburbs, how their models were. They often had uh, primary uh, buildings. They often had middle school buildings and of course uh, the high schools. And so I saw an opportunity to become uh, an assistant principal in a primary uh, school. And so I sure enough landed the job, um, but I was the only African-American assistant principal in the entire district of about 30,000 students, uh, 27, 28 schools. Um, and that was hard. And I was not expecting to in encounter uh, uh, the racism and discrimination that I, I did encounter um, throughout my uh, time there. Um, and so that was uh, heartbreaking, you know, uh, when the public housings closed in the city, a lot of the, the project buildings closed in the city, uh, Section 8 vouchers sort of migrated mm -hmm. out here to where I am. And so there's literally a pocket of low income housing where a lot of black kids and families from the city ended up. And so the district uh, was broken up into two, two sides. Essentially, you have the side of one side and then you have the elite affluent side. I was on the title one side. I loved it. There were actually families uh, from the city that I had taught, you know, years early in my career. And so we had that connection. So when I uh, started really trying to look to see, you know, where I was most needed, the kids were below grade level expectations. Uh, many of them were, were failing, you know, two, three grade level behind. Uh, the office discipline referrals were well into the thousands, if not the 2000s consistently. And so um, I was transferred to the elementary building where most of the black students were. And I thought this was a great opportunity. I was meeting uh, grandparents and parents that was just honored to have someone that looked like them. I have locks, you know, I look like them. I, I sound like them. Uh, and, and that was a great co community connection, but, you know, 99.9% .9 of the staff was white. And so mm -hmm. having those conversations around um, changing how we discipline children, uh, we're not going to kick kids out of the classroom, but we can, I can support you with classroom management strategies. Um, 
we're not going to um, write the student off just because you need some uh, support with teaching. And uh, those were constant conversations that I had, uh, was meeting with, you know, superintendent and the cabinet and, and all of that. Uh, and it just became a um, just an overwhelming sort of burden, uh, knowing that they were essentially uh, trying to blackball me in my leadership capacity, isolating me. Um, that was hard, uh, Dr. Will, to, to go through that month after after month and knowing the sense of urgency for saving our babies. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just, you know, felt that um, it was time for me to, to leave uh, in self-preservation of my mental health and my stamina uh, and in being able to show up uh, as a whole uh, leader. Um, it was just not a good environment, environment for me to stay in a long term. And um, I decided to resign uh, in March. And sure enough, the week that I was, you know, my last week was the week that here in Illinois, we, we went on lockdown. And um, it was just amazing the timing because I knew that the, the leaders that were still there, like the shift that they had to make at the end of uh, last school year was just overwhelming. I'm like, wow, you know, uh, God's timing is perfect. And so I was sort of able to come out of there uh, without doing all of those, you know, shifts and changes, knowing I was not returning back to that school um, for, for this school year, essentially. Um, and so I was able to uh, utilize that time to finish my research and complete my doctorate. So that worked out well for me. And I was still applying for, you know, traditional roles in schools and principalships. I was ready for my own building uh, at this point. And uh, those doors uh, just didn't open for me. I got to the final round about five times and, you know, the other candidate was selected. And that was that that was hurtful, knowing that, um, you know, I had so much to offer and I had all this passion. I had all of this you know, skill set and capacity and, you know, to get to the door and it just wouldn't open. And uh, I have Shirley Chisholm's book, uh, Unbought and Unbossed. And she references, you know, if they don't give you a seat at the table, you bring a folding chair. And so I really had just some time to reflect and look at, you know, all of my experiences, all of my skill sets, all of my passions uh, and capacity and to say, hey, let me structure, you know, an organization around, uh, around this. And so uh, the word, the panacea, which is uh, the primary name for my company actually came from uh, my doctoral research. My research topic was chronic absenteeism, the problem, the participants, the panacea. And I said, wow, you know, the panacea means, you know, this sort of in all uh, inclusive solution. And I said, you know, all of the experiences that I've had personally, professionally, that can help support so many kids uh, larger than just one school, one district. And so that's sort of the story behind creating the company. Um, as I sort of had the early stages of the company, I'm, I'm speaking like the company is old, but it's about six months old now. But um, I, I had a mentor, mentor friend uh, who is an attorney, and I was, you know, just sort of trying to talk to him about, you know, where I want uh, the company to go and, and my passions and my desires. And he was like, I think you should start, start a nonprofit also. And um, I, you know, uh, incorporated a nonprofit uh, in September. Uh, it is definitely in its in infancy stages, but it's called Strength to Win. And it's, it's, it's going to be a hub for, uh, for parents, for educators, uh, for uh, children uh, to have uh, strategies and, and resources to win. So whether it is winning in the legal world, uh, there are a lot of parents that I have interacted with 
uh, especially you know in that suburban experience that should probably be seeking legal help. Uh, there were things that I encountered along the way uh, that I, I did obtain legal counsel, but it was sort of after uh, things were sort of already blown up. And so there were a lot of things that I experienced that uh, had I had mentorship, had I had uh, resources, had I had um, uh, just someone to tell me, hey, go this way, go that way, um, I probably would have had a, a different outcome in, in multiple uh, stages and seasons of my life. And so this nonprofit, now that I'm uh, in the process of getting on its feet next year, uh, is going to be that hub for for people to have those resources uh, if they are having challenges with school districts, if teachers are having you know challenges with you know administrators or or fellow colleagues. Um, that is going to be the, the the hub for obtaining those resources. Um, so I really want to develop that company uh, in the near future, but it was birthed out of the panacea. So, so that's there, the long version of <laughs> the answer. Well, there's all sorts of ways to create and conduct, uh, deliver a business, progress and services. Uh, there are some educators who have online businesses only where they do webinars and coaching, mm -hmm. uh, deliver courses. Uh, some people have mastermind groups. Mm -hmm. uh, you have those educators who have authors and from that, you know, uh, do book studies, et cetera. And then you, you have, I guess, the traditional form of uh, I show up, deliver these trainings and I go mm -hmm. home or I enter into agreement with a school district to do for three months, mm -hmm. six months, whatever, I'm going to be working with you on trying to do X, Y, and Z. Mm -hmm. How did you figure out sort of what your business would be about and how did you determine what your business would do and how in terms of its creation and delivery of products and services? Um, that's a good question. I think for me, um, I, I really had a lot of time to reflect and to really see um, sort of where the need was. Um, around the time that I created uh, my company, that was when, you know, George Floyd, you know, had, had recently got murdered. Uh, there was a lot of um, uh, social justice, you know, energy and noise about, you know, fixing the wrong uh, in our country. And so I really started to think about, you know, what I had to offer um, and how I can sort of tailor that to, to meet uh, the needs of our K-12 uh, institutions. And uh, just from a, you know, a practitioner standpoint, um, I am a systems person. You know, I've been in a lot of environments where there have been great uh, interventions, great programs, you know, in schools. Um, but if that person leaves that, you know, originated that program or intervention, so does the, the intervention and the program. And so throughout my career, I have just tried to always uh, prepare models for people mm -hmm. in the event that I am gone, that the children are not at a deficit and the children are not lacking this resource. Um, and so even in my uh, uh, research, you know, uh, one of the main methodologies that I use uh, with document analysis research. And I love that. And I parlayed it with uh, action re participatory action research. Uh, but the document analysis research, uh, basically um, one of my specialties is to really look and examine, look at and examine 
documents essentially, but to really see, you know, where the gaps are, uh, what's missing, what can be filled. And so I, I literally can disaggregate, you know, uh, a plethora of documents just to look at them from the black and white perspective to see where the gaps need to be filled. And so systemically, I'm able also to do that. And so I thought about, you know, my work as an early childhood educator, there are major gaps in our early childhood um, uh, 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 systems and programs. Obviously, you know, the DEI work is, is something that is, you know, past due. Um, and a lot of districts and schools are gearing up to sort of uh, have that work done within their schools. Uh, work around, you know, uh, uh, school culture and climate, uh, which relates to um, uh, discipline referrals and restorative justice practices. That's work that's needed. And so I just started looking at some of the key uh, areas uh, in the system that I noticed that could be strengthened um, and just started to create um, systemic methodologies for correcting uh, some of the practices that have gone uh, for years and decades without having uh, those um, uh, intervention uh, models uh, implanted and incorporated within schools. Awesome, awesome. So how did you get that business knowledge in, in terms of, because you just brought up systems. So in terms of creating that system and understanding how this thing is not just an idea, mm-hmm. right? But an actual business. Because I know you mentioned you, you, you had some legal help, but mm-hmm. that sort of business financial side of understanding mm-hmm. how this thing works out. How did you go about getting that information? Dr. Will, to be honest, I am um, I'm building as I go. Um, I've been fortunate to have have met uh, great mentors uh, along the way in, in various uh, professions and and lanes, um, and so I do sort of tap into my you know personal connections often. Uh, but a lot of stuff I am learning, you know, on mm-hmm. my own. I attend a slew of webinars. You know, I've signed up. Uh, uh, through the government, uh, the SBA Association, they offer free webinars. You know, they're, uh, uh, the state of Illinois, they offer free webinars and trainings for small business owners. Um, and so I am, you know, almost self-teaching. And there are days that I get frustrated because I just don't know, you know, what I don't know until I get there. I'm like, I didn't know that, <laughs> you know, but um, there are enough people that are connected to me. And like I said, free resources out there that are showing me things that I I didn't, I was not a business major, you know, so, mm-hmm. so I don't necessarily know all of those ins and outs, but I do know some of the basic uh, things about getting an EIN number, uh, how to, you know, register the company within the state. Uh, I sit on a board, uh, a nonprofit board uh, here in, in Chicago called Burst Into Books. Um, and so the founder and I, we're, we're good friends and, and the company is uh, two to three years old. So there are things that she, she learned, you know, uh, that she was able to, to show me and, and resources to point me to. So I do think that being a business owner is uh, really uh, closely connect, connected to your capacity to network, uh, whether it is clients or whether it is knowledge. And I think uh, so often I was talking to, to a friend of mine uh, yesterday and, and he's been a consultant uh, for, for a while. And I uh, had a uh, scenario just to run past him and uh, he was able to sort of guide me and direct me uh, into 
um, uh, the next phase of, of uh, this project that I'm working on to, to, to gain additional capital to, to maximize uh, the leverage that I do have with this relationship. And uh, that's what, you know, I've learned and, and, and uh, just to be open, you know, you just never know when someone will uh, impart knowledge or wisdom. And, and to, I always keep, you know, my notes application open on my phone. I, I have a, thousands of notes because, you know, I'm always listening and, and desiring to learn more um, and even to, to refine uh, my skill set and my capacity and to grow. So, so that's, you know, sort of this work in progress. Um, and, and I'm just open to, to acknowledging uh, where I need help and when I need help and um, uh, allowing, you know, things to sort of work out uh, in that in that direction. Mm. So let's go deeper into the to the work that you're you're doing. So mm -hmm. you say that you are great with sort of document analysis and, and mm -hmm. critiquing when a school district uh, comes to you, how does that work out in terms of you looking at what, what they're doing to make them better? So it is uh, honestly case by case. Uh, all districts and all schools have different needs. Uh, so some of the work that I'm actually doing now with the school district in uh, Wisconsin, actually, um, uh, is MTSS work. Mm. Uh, so supporting them with... Um, this, this school is a really unique uh, um, opportunity and I love uh, that I'm actually sort of planted there right now. And it's a high school. So that has sort of been a growth opportunity for me because traditionally, you know, I, I prefer the younger kids and, and a lot of my experience was, you know, in the elementary world. And so um, what I've done with supporting them is really looking at um, they have a lot of interventions, you know, they have a lot of resources in this particular school, in this particular building. Um, and so the staff does not necessarily reflect the students, uh, but they have the passion and the heart and the desire to learn uh, and to want to grow and to help the kids. Um, and so what we are doing now is honestly building um, an MTSS team uh, that that um, is made up of school counselors, school 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 psychologists, um, uh, administrators, um, teachers. Um, and so this, this grand team, now we're sort of teaching them uh, the systemic process of evaluating interventions. What needs to be in place if we're gonna say we're gonna use this intervention? What's the interest exit criteria? Mm -hmm. uh, how do we communicate with all stakeholders? How do we include parents? You know, how do we uh, progress monitor what data resources are available for us to analyze? Um, and so really looking at uh, sort of what this school has in place, because they have great things, uh, but really sort of funneling it to more of a systemic process. So it's not this random hodgepodge, you know, hit or miss uh, sort of um, strategies when we have, you know, 40% of this, the kids failing at 12th grade, you know? So, so really it's, it's, it's hard. I think it's harder to, to sort of come into environments where uh, people have momentum because you don't want to crush their spirits, mm -hmm. but you also want to sort of get them on the right path um, so that uh, they're, um, um, so that what they're doing can have greater, so that they can have greater outcomes for, for the work that they're doing. So um, school by school, it, it really is, 
uh, different, you know, mm-hmm. and I'm able to tap into sort of just those systemic processes mm-hmm. of, you know, knowing that, hey, the, the key things for sort of fixing any, uh, not any, but most of the problems in our field uh, is, you know, having data, uh, analyzing the data, having, you know, um, uh, timelines in place, and then having um, uh, reflection processes and uh, 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 remedial steps in place to, to alter uh, uh, things that we're trying to, to change, essentially. So those are basic components that you sort of can implement into any sort of a structural thing that needs to be changed. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but this year, you know, uh, within the last three months, I've honestly been doing a lot of work around uh, the diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, and, and that has sort of consumed a lot of my time. Uh, so even I've, um, in the process of copyright, copywriting, uh, this implementation, includes inclusion implementation loop uh, that I do plan on writing about uh, and sort of creating a handbook for uh, um, implementing this sort of implementation loop model to promote uh, inclusivity uh, that will promote equity. I always tell people, I said, you know, I put the I before the E. A lot of people, the acronym is traditionally DEI, but my belief, my philosophy is that inclusivity promotes equity. So if I am an inclusive educator, if I'm an inclusive being, Mm -hmm. there's no way that equity won't be that one of the outcomes. Mm -hmm. So when you are in that system and you know, by the time you in tier three, I mean, you know, we, we know where kids are at that point. Um, how can schools sort of circle back at that tier one to make sure that uh, and tier one people, well, educators, mm-hmm. they know what that is. That's that's mm-hmm. basic, solid and good instruction from the jump so yeah. that kids don't go into tier two or to tier three. But we also mm-hmm. understand that you know, chronic abs- absenteeism, as you mentioned, mm-hmm. could pull a kid into tier tier two and tier three. But mm-hmm. when you're tr- when you're tr- how do you tackle what's going on in tier three, but then be able to circle back to say we need to get this right in tier one? Absolutely, um, great question, great timing. Uh, <laughs> that is the work that we're going to do when we come back uh, in January. Uh, is really strengthen our base. And like I said, this particular dif- district that I referenced, uh, great interventions, you know, a lot of things in place and the people, uh, thankfully, uh, but the tier one is not, uh, the foundation is not good. Um, and so what I've uh, done um, is talk to, of course, the administrators uh, and the school leaders about uh, really uh, developing teachers um, uh, at the tier one level with intervention strategies. Often in my experiences, and it could just be me, um, a lot of teachers rely on someone else to fix their behavior concerns, uh, someone else to fix their, the kids that are not on grade level. Uh, but there are things that classroom teachers, the tier one were 80%, approximately 80% of our students should thrive in uh, that we can do uh, without pulling in, you know, the specialists, without pulling in, you know, the administrators. Uh, and so I think that does uh, really uh, connect closely to how schools and districts develop their professional development plans. You know, are we really um, uh, teaching or, or uh, refining teacher practices 
where they need the refinement at. Um, and and I'm, I'm trying to work with schools and districts on developing good PD uh, agendas, good PD plans, uh, so that the things that teachers are sitting there, you know, an hour or two monthly, that it's really things that they can use in their practice in their day-to-day -day life um, and, and building sort of from that, that perception, um, that perspective rather, and, and strengthening uh, our day-to-day -day interactions with students. Um, like I mentioned earlier, having that data piece, and I think, you know, that's a word that we sometimes overuse, and a lot of educators are afraid of that word, and they, they, they closely connect, I think, data often when they hear that word with assessments. But data, you know, anything can sort of be used as a data point. Um, or data, data tracking sort of system, uh, communication. There are a lot of uh, data points with communication and, and the frequency of that. Uh, so really helping uh, educators see that, hey, we did not just have to rely on, you know, the yearly sort of assessments to get sort of a data set, but um, even when it comes down, especially to student behavior, uh, really looking at Johnny or Sally, is there a certain time of day that the student is triggered? You know, what happened, you know, is it a certain day of the week that perhaps maybe Mondays and, and Wednesdays are days that we notice uh, that, you know, they, they are more uh, agitated or they're more irritable or more disrespectful. So let's sort of backtrack and see what perhaps may have happened before uh, they got to that point. And, and so just sort of opening that lens of, Data is nothing we have to be afraid of, but also being aware that data is also very much around us and we can use it to inform our practice in order to improve student outcomes. So who is your target audience? Because, <laughs> and being an educational consultant and, and the work that mm -hmm. we do, you know, you, you could, think of yourself as a Walmart, mm -hmm. uh, but really we need to think of ourselves uh, as a Best Buy or mm -hmm. a Whole Foods or whatever so that we can really nail down mm -hmm. our niche and who we, you know, who we need to be working with. Well, you know, just because I, I teach Google doesn't mean I need to work with every school with Google, uh, that doesn't exactly. make any sense at all. So mm -hmm. who do you decide on who you want to work with, right? And and what mm -hmm. is sort of your value add or your, your differentiation from other people who may do similar work than you do? Um, so my heart is with, you know, black students. Um, and, and helping uh, improve the atmospheres that they um, are thriving in or trying to thrive in. Um, so I tend to gravitate uh, or vice versa, you know, I'm sort of pulled in those directions where uh, schools that, you know, I, I got my sort of ground roots, uh, ground level training in a felling school. And uh, my principal at the time, he would, he would say, Williams, he said, you know, you got to work like it all depends on you and pray like it all depends on God. <laughs> and so those are my formative years where literally the school was one of the schools that was slated to close. Um, and, and he just sort of transformed that school. And 
uh, when I left, it was a level one school, uh, which is one of the top levels in the city. And that was brutal work. <laughs> you know, that was, you know, a lot of blood, sweat and tears. Um, and so I'm sort of drawn to uh, those environments where uh, there are major deficits where kids are two, three, four grade levels behind where, you know, they are well over the, the you know, 7% uh, chronic absenteeism rate. Um, and, and, and so I'm, I'm drawn to those communities, not that I, I don't, I, I believe I can support, like you said, all schools, but um, I know the strategies to, to bring parents in, uh, the strategies to uh, um, uh, get kids, you know, excited about learning. Um, and so those are the communities that I would love to, to just support uh, primarily, um, but uh, as I noted around this work around uh, the diversity, equity, and inclusion, that that is a high need right now. Um, and so changing philosophies and perspectives, because as we know, Dr. Will, you know, 85 to 89% of educators are white. Um, and so those are structural issues that we have to uh, uh, sort of change and, and allow uh, educators that don't look like the kids that are failing or that are absent uh, to change sort of that mindset and give them resources and support before we can uh, necessarily, you know, attack some of these academic needs and concerns and gaps uh, that we have seen for, for decades. And is, is, you know, when I hear about sort of the lack of uh, black teachers in the in the profession mm -hmm. for me it's research but it's not personal experience mm. because I'm in Mississippi and I know in the south not to say there are areas that don't have it but there are a lot of black teachers and black administrators mm -hmm. and superintendents mm -hmm. here and primarily I'm going to chalk it up to HBCU since most of them are in our region uh, of the country. I know you attended one, Chicago State. Um, mm -hmm. So it's it's interesting uh, uh, when you say that. Now, mm -hmm. I, I, I want to ask you about about your setbacks, but you know because mm -hmm. you just like in the game. I'm glad you're working. Mm -hmm. You know, because some people it take them a long time to see that first check when they first started. So kudos mm -hmm. to you to get that contract with that school district. Um, what have some of your setbacks have been and what are you seeing uh, as some of the biggest uh, challenges you've encountered? Um, for me, I think it's accepting the season that I'm in. Mm. Um, that's hard, you know, because I, I didn't plan on being an entrepreneur right now, you know. I, I knew that th this was something I would have loved to, to, to have done sort of later on uh, in my career um, and, and sort of just being dropped into this, you know, concept of uh, really just sort of making my way, pushing my way through uh, because of, you know, all the things that I sort of encountered that led me to this point of time. And also knowing that uh, this is a, a season, you know, this is not forever, uh, meaning that there is always, you know, light uh, at the end of the tunnel. One of my slogans that I say to myself or mantras, whatever you want to call it, is that nothing is final but death. 
So anytime that I'm alive, anytime that, you know, you're alive or we wake up, then we have opportunities to, to enhance uh, our current situation. And so having, you know, like I said, the, the network um, of people that encourage me, you know, making sure my pastor, he, he tells us, he said, uh, you know, in between your miracle, take your medicine. Like, yeah, we can rely on God, but, you know, there are things that we can put in place also uh, to help us. So going to therapy, you know, having a therapist, uh, keeping in contact with those who love me and care about me, letting them know sort of when I'm frustrated, you know, when I've reached that that ceiling of like, oh, man, today was not a good day. This week sucked. This month sucked. You know, I didn't get any traction, uh, but I am still a great person, uh, you know, you know, uh, NDRE has that song, I am not my hair, but you know, I am not this moment of, of, of my life. This is not all that I am. Um, and so keeping that in mind and just um, reminding myself of, of why, you know, I'm in the profession, what my core values are, and that is to, to transform student lives. So if it is, you know, as a consultant, if it is as a school administrator, um, I have obtain the credentials to always go back to traditional role, you know, and so knowing that I always have options, you know, I think about people that um, uh, encounter depression, and I've had my struggles, you know, with that, but often you feel like there are no options. And so I always have to keep an option. You know, I always have to have a way out so that I won't feel like I'm stuck, or I'm overwhelmed, or that I, I don't um, have a purpose. And so that's, those are things that um, I just sort of keep as, as part of my person. Um, and then keeping my eye uh, out for other opportunities. Um, I am uh, actively looking for uh, opportunities in higher ed. I believe teacher uh, preparation programs need some sort of reformation, you know, or reformation, I'm sorry. Uh, I believe that uh, teacher training programs uh, that there are gaps there too. And so I would love to, to be a part of a higher ed organization that can really uh, prepare teachers so that we are not uh, losing teachers after their second or third year because it is overwhelming. It is a lot to do in public ed. It, it is. And one of the things about K through 12 that it's gonna take money you know, and mm -hmm. people trying to be, they trying to do stuff on the cheap. Mm -hmm. But higher ed understands the idea of wraparound services. Yes. Right. So you go to higher ed, though people may not go to the career center, it exists. Mm -hmm. uh, people may not go to the counseling center as they need to, but they exist. Mm -hmm. uh, people may have issues and they may not want to go to the the, the, the place where they can get remedial assistance in the academics, but those places exist. Um, and in K through 12, all of that is placed on very few people to, to address all mm -hmm. those issues. You don't find a lot of social, you know, full-time social workers, like their mm -hmm. offices on the campus. Mm -hmm. They work for the, 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 um, the school district, not I'm coming in from an outside agency, seeing some kids and I'm rolling back out. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. and, and nurses and psychologists and all those things because mm -hmm. school counselors, though uh, the, I believe it's called ACA, that model is supposed to be about them being guidance mm -hmm. counselors and providing that mental health help. We mm -hmm. know that a lot of schools, they're doing scheduling 
and yeah. testing and stuff and really don't have the time to really provide that help for kids. So, you know, mm-hmm. K through K through 12 really needs to get into the game of providing more wraparound mm-hmm. uh, services for students, because uh, if, if you are going to take on these roles, as we have seen in the last 20 years, you mm-hmm. cannot put that on the shoulders of teachers who one were never prepared to, to deal with it. Yeah. Uh, and two, the burnout is real. Asking a teacher yeah. to take that on and then to go home and sort of wash that off like they didn't have that type of day is mm-hmm. ridiculous. And you have, again, you have a lot of people, uh, they just getting out because quite mm-hmm. honestly, the pay ain't worth the pain. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so from your time in the game, what mm-hmm. are you seeing in the educational consulting space? Like what has surprised you? What has given you uh, optimism or excitement or what has caused you sort of like, oh, I didn't know this was a part of it. You know, what mm-hmm. has been your experiences thus far? Thus far, you know, um, I think probably some of the surprises that I've encountered and I, I think it's just probably the contrast between working in the city of Chicago and, and having the suburban experience. Uh, the Chica- city of Chicago, you know, we, uh, the educators there, they are, you know, vast majority are passionate. Uh, they have uh, stamina, uh, but the resources are lacking. Mm. Versus suburban, they have the resources, but that passion, that stamina is lacking. Um, and so just seeing just the, the two worlds essentially, uh, but the outcomes are, are very similar for minority kids with their learning gaps. Um, and so just really looking at that and just trying to, you know, I've had to sort of uh, refine uh, my, my practices. Uh, I did not tap into, you know, a lot of my uh, um, uh, curriculum and instruction training uh, when I was sort of a part of districts and schools. And so now I'm having to, to pull out old books and, and, and looking at old um, uh, theories and, and uh, philosophies that I learned and sort of tapping into that to really provide uh, uh, the, the settings with those resources. And so um, those are probably the, the things that I've, I've seen uh, that have really been eye-opening for me. And then uh, back to this work around diversity, uh, equity, and inclusion that I'm doing, um, and it's pre- predominantly for white educators, uh, just to see that there are um, uh, affluent individuals that in these trainings, in these sessions that uh, really don't know, you know, uh, a lot of these concepts or had no awareness, you know, of the, the, the um, discriminatory uh, practices or systems that are even in their buildings, you know, um, and, and just sort of reckoning with the adults in the room, um, uh, that has been very eye-opening and encouraging them to, uh, pers- you know, pursue, you know, mental health support uh, to navigate sort of that white guilt that a lot of them are experiencing. That has been eye-opening, Dr. Will, because I just never, I didn't believe that the other side just, 
didn't know, and some of them may have uh, known, but but just sort of the emotional uh, uh, outbursts and, and emotional encounters that uh, a lot of the adults that are attached to this work uh, are having, that has been very uh, eye-opening, and um, it has sort of made me more uh, sensitive, I guess, uh, not necessarily empathetic, and I don't mean that in a, in, in a harsh way, but uh, just uh, more sensitive and more aware uh, that there is a lot of work that we have to do with um, uh, making people aware of the uh, systemic uh, uh, sort of um, processes that have been in place uh, up until now um, in my research for related to chronic absenteeism. I did take the readers on a timeline of how education started in America. And it was designed to have a subservient class and an elite class. And as you know, you know, we did not uh, have the luxury of being literate. Um, uh, many of our ancestors were, were, were lynched or, or whipped or severely beat, beaten if they could even you know, read and write basic uh, things. And so um, showing that, um, that sort of historical lens to people um, has really just been sort of an eye-opening uh, encounter for a lot of people that I just assumed that, hey, you all knew that prior to you know, segregation, these were the barriers that we had. And even after, I'm sorry, uh, prior to integration and even after integration, we're still, you know, uh, trying to fight our way through. Um, and I, I tell people all the time, I said, you know, there's uh, the No Child Left Behind Act gets a lot of sort of uh, pushback and people just have their perspectives about it. And then I, I bring in the awareness I said, well, up until 2002 from 1965 when President Johnson incorporated that first school reform act up until 2002 there were no major reform policies for k-12 so for almost 40 years we were thriving in a system that was subpar to address the needs of all students um, and so i appreciate the no child left behind act sort of opening that door for accountability for hey we got to look at this the achievement gap now it is a thing because this integration has happened, mm -hmm. but also what do our kids need? And so now we have ESSA, of course, but just that reality of that for almost 40 years, no president really sort of had this major uh, reform initiative under their presidency. Mm. That's all right. I, <laughs> I personally think that black folks need to create our own mandated educational uh, policy yeah. and uh, just let the system die and crumble because yeah. <laughs> it, yeah. it ain't serving us or our children well. And no. No. Um, though I believe in an all, I believe in an all hands on deck policy. So I believe mm -hmm. we do need those who look like us mm -hmm. uh, at the federal level and state level, uh, local mm -hmm. level fighting Mm -hmm. Also know that we need a lot more of us on the outside building institutions yes. for us to serve us uh, because it when to me when we were better as a collective mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. we controlled what happened in our communities yes right now 
and we were in our communities. We're in our communities too, right? So right now we have a collective of excellence as individuals. So we got, so we got a lot more black millionaires. We got a lot more, you know, educated black people than ever. We got a lot more wealthier black people Mm -hmm. than ever in our existence in this country. However, the collective is still suffering because we are not connected as a people Yeah. because those of us, myself included, because I don't live in the hood, mm-hmm. uh, we are not connected with our brothers and sisters. We, they are off on their own and yeah. we have not come together to build and grow and develop together as a people to create mm-hmm. an agenda for ourselves, by ourselves, so that as a collective, again, we can can strive and do uh, greater things. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, I agree a thousand percent. Um, I don't live in the hood either, uh, but I am I'm still connected to the hood. Like I said, I I'm a part of nonprofit organizations and um, you know a, a part of NAACP and things that. Um, you know, that our community org- organized. Um, but I also know that we need resources. We need financial resources, you know, mm-hmm. to, to really revamp our community so that they're not essentially the hood. You know, yes. um, I don't believe, you know, and, and this sort of may be off topic and you might want to edit this out, but, um, you know, when my grandmother migrated to Chicago from Arkansas, uh, my mom and her siblings were one of the first families uh, in the project housing uh, of structure uh, that was here in the city. So they lived in, uh, the building was called Prairie Courts. Um, and so it was a one story, 13 floor building, you know, all the families in there. And I, I love listen, listening to the stories that my mom and my uh, aunts and uncles would tell about the community uh, perspective of the projects. They didn't know necessarily that they were poor because it really had the, that thriving community where if we didn't have eggs and you all did, we have the flour, all of us will eat the cake, you know, and, and just having that, that concept that the projects were not what they are today. Um, the government, of course, uh, built projects to have us stacked on, you know, each other's like sardines. And, and I believe they thought that we would sort of, you know, destroy ourselves from the inside out. Um, but that didn't happen, not in the, the 50s and 60s, at least. So then we have to think about, well, what did happen structurally with, with those family models? My, my grandmother and my mom, they would talk about how uh, fathers couldn't be listed on the lease and you received government support. So the government intentionally sort of broke up the families. If I can't lease my husband, you know, list my husband as, you know, an individual in this household and receive support, um, and I'm not saying that the government has sort of, you know, allowed people to to be unfaithful to their families and, and all of that, but that did create a rift in the family unit. Um, and then we have to think about the drugs that were brought to our communities uh, to destroy uh, uh, the lives of so many that are still, you know, trying to recover or, or may not ever recover, but those were brought into our communities, you know, by, you know, outside forces. And those were things that over time tore down 
the project uh, uh, housing uh, sort of communities that at one time were the, the resource were, was where the strength came from for us to do better. Um, and so those are things that I think we sometimes forget. The hood is what it is now, but it didn't start off like that. I hear you, but we just need to do better. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We've had a lot of people, whether it's Dr. Carter G. Woodson, yeah. uh, Marva Collins, uh, Booker T, W.E.B. Du Bois, Malcolm, mm -hmm. Marcus, uh, even Martin Luther King started to talk about economics. Uh, We've had a lot of people, both name and nameless, talk mm -hmm. about as a community what we need to be doing. And mm -hmm. we have not done so. And, you know, we, we have to, because we don't have to. I understand economically people may feel I got to hit these streets, but we don't have to. And mm -hmm. we don't have to make other choices that, uh, we have made as a uh, that has had uh, an impact on the collective in which we have problems because the reality is we can be happy for Kamala we can say Joe cool Ooh, Satan is out of office uh, <laughs> but the reality is we cannot rely on any government in itself to do for us what we have to and must do for ourselves. Yes. Uh, and, I agree. and if we don't understand that, and if we don't collectively pull our dollars together and start doing for us what needs to be done, we are going to be in trouble because when you hear statistics of by 2000 some something, the majority of America will be brown. Okay, but if but if that brown don't control the green, mm. it won't matter. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that is, and that's what we are right now is that we're not controlling the green in our community. Mm -hmm. And we need mm -hmm. to, because that affects everything else. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. All right. So before we go, what is your advice uh, to those educators who are, thinking about starting their own educational consulting company and how should they go about the process of determining their own lane? Great question. I think my number one advice is to, um, to, to really monitor uh, the seasons of life that you're in. Uh, knowing when you know you're on the cuffs of uh, a new season emerging and when that previous season it, it, that time is up essentially um, and I say that because I think often we we stay sometimes in places and spaces too long and so not only are we sort of emotionally uh, impacted but then those that we are connected to you know they know that you know our passion is sort of it, it, it's expired or it's leaving and so we're not mm -hmm. Uh, showing up as our whole self. So really just keep a, a, a monitor or gauge on the seasons uh, of life that you're navigating. Um, and then if you're thinking about starting, you know, an educational consulting company, uh, find the free resources, find the webinars, uh, um, go to um, paid and free 
uh, uh, trainings on, you know, business, if that is not, you know, your background or you don't have people in your uh, circle that has that uh, understanding and that knowledge um, so that you're not um, uh, creating other stresses in your life because, you know, you're having difficulty managing the business side of the work. And then, you know, um, I would suggest strongly that uh, create a business that um, uh, engulfs your passion. Uh, because when the clients aren't calling, you know, when, when you are not uh, as busy as you used to be and you're get, you get discouraged, uh, you, you have to draw from your passion and, and your why um, for all that you do. And, and, and that would be probably my best advice to give. Um, and like I said earlier, you know, nothing is final but death. So if it doesn't work, you know, try again, you know, if this is where you're really called, uh, called to be and called to do. Mm. Oh, yes, people. <laughs> Ooh, thank you, Doc, for coming on the show. No problem. Thanks for having me. You are welcome. Now, people, you know how I do this. This podcast episode is going to be on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Simplecast, Stitcher, and Spotify. I need you to subscribe and share. Do I like the stars? Yes. But if you will, give a brother some comments and some reviews. <laughs> I'm trying to be found and I'm trying to get Oprah on the show. And I want her to know that I'm doing big things around here. Again, I'd like to thank my guest, Dr. Markenia Williams, for coming on and dropping so many gems. And I'd like to thank you again for checking out another episode of the Dr. Will Show, the mobile university for entrepreneurs. As always, people, invest in you. EDU, peace.